Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. We've talked about in the past the fact that the start of the Economic Security Project has been one of the biggest and most exciting developments in the basic income space over the past few years. Now, while the Economic Security Project does a lot of really important work, there's been one new development that's come out of the work of one of their co-chairs, Chris Hughes, which is the publishing of a book called Fair Shot, which is about his story and his idea for how we might actually achieve a guaranteed income in the United States. So here to talk things over with us is Chris Hughes himself. He's the co-founder of Facebook, co-chair of the Economic Security Project, and author of Fair Shot. Welcome, Chris. Thank you guys for having me. So let's go back a little bit. How did you first hear about basic income? The door I came in through was actually international development. So in the years leading up to Facebook's IPO and just after, my husband and I made a commitment to give away effectively, I mean, the vast majority, effectively all the money that came from that event in the course of our lifetimes. And so we were, to be honest, a little overwhelmed because there were just so many different causes out there that we believed in and some of which I'd worked on, some which he worked on. And we chose to try to narrow the field by looking at what what interventions had evidence to back them up. In other words, where the impact could be identified and could be measured. And that journey took us particularly to Africa several times and to visiting a whole host of different kinds of programs. And I became really fascinated by the idea of giving people cash. I mean, it was the, I can remember the first time that I read about it. It was actually on the GiveWell blog. Holden um, Karnofsky had written a post about being in India and seeing so many people living in extreme poverty there and just posing the question, well, what would be so bad about just giving them money instead of funding the nonprofits? And that really stuck with me more as a question than a, than a cause at that phase. And, but as I pursued the question, I realized a lot of people have been doing this for years. There was a lot of studies on the topic internationally. And then I got involved with Give Directly, started making direct cash transfers to people in the developing world. And as soon as I really, after a few years of that, became convinced of the effectiveness, then I turned my attention to sort of the big picture idea in the U.S. and globally of you know, using cash as the primary instrument of providing financial stability in an ongoing way. So that took me to the guaranteed income and to UBI, but it was through that door that I then discovered all kinds of other writings on the, on the topic and the cash programs we have here. Now, on that note, in your book, you talk about two different trips to Kenya. The first to observe the Millennium Villages Project, which provides or provided things like clean water, agricultural support, and banking services. And the second with GiveDirectly, as you mentioned, which of course gives unconditional cash. Can you tell us a bit more about those experiences and how specifically that affected your thinking here? Yeah, I, I write about those experiences in the book because they were real markers for me. I mean, as with anything else, the stories that built up around them were years and years in the making, and I was trying to boil it down to a couple key moments. But the Millennium Village trip was really instructive. So the idea there is that uh, Jeff Sachs, uh, an economist at Columbia and several others in the U- in the international development field, had the idea in the early 2000s that if we could provide all the services that a small town or city needed through government support, then we could eradicate poverty. So in other words, not just like 
hospitals and schools, but roads, sanitation, basic services like agricultural training, I mean, just a whole suite of options, then there's no way that those villages wouldn't just emerge out of poverty. And I took a trip to one of them. And as I relate in the book, it didn't really smell right. Like the dormitories where the kids were supposed to be staying felt like military barracks. They were just totally empty. And there was little evidence that any kids were actually staying there. The health clinics didn't really seem used. The computers that they had brought in were under lock and key and weren't really even connected to the internet. And the long story short is that other journalists later chronicled that these villages, while there were a couple that were somewhat successful, by and large, they had raised hundreds of millions of dollars and and not really provided the benefits that people wanted to see. So I, I did become skeptical and it played into a kind of worldview or outlook that I had already that was a little suspicious that you know, this idea that that um, the experts always know best, um, just I think we saw quite clearly in this one example and in others that that's not always true. And so then I swung to the opposite direction. Well, what is the most clear intervention that empowers recipients and beneficiaries and specifically says the experts might not know, but the recipient very well might know. And cash is unlike anything else in that it, it trusts the recipient to be the, the master of his or her own destiny. And so the evidence also shows that more often than not, the, those dollars are well spent and are invested effectively. So the give directly model is about you know uh, providing cash with no strings attached. We get sometimes bogged down in an either or. And I want to be clear that I'm not there. That it's not that I think that, that cash is you know a panacea and we still need roads and hospitals and bridges and good government to provide those things. But I do think that we tend to overlook cash and immediately jump to complex systemic solutions rather than trusting people to make their own choices. And I hope that we can move the needle in the direction of empowerment a little bit more. And did you need any convincing that the same idea applies to the U.S. and developed countries as it does in, in Kenya? Um, I was generally of the school that what we know internationally might not be relevant here in the U.S. You know, I was, the U.S. is so different. A developed economy is really different. Living on less than a dollar a day is different than, than being poor in America. And I still think that that last point is true. However, I also have really come to believe that the idea of American exceptionalism that, you know, Americans might not be as smart or as responsible with cash as everybody else. This sort of cynical idea of American exceptionalism isn't true. You know, the evidence just doesn't bear it out. And so coming to the U.S. context, I was really inspired, to be honest, by the ideals behind a UBI. You know, the idea that everybody deserves the dignity. Well, everybody has the dignity and we need to recognize the dignity to not live in poverty and that everybody should have the freedom to choose what they want to do with their time. It was much more of a philosophical kind of approach for me initially. And then as I got into the data around the earned income tax credit and got a sense of how um, things worked in Alaska and looked at the data from the Eastern Band of Cherokee and looked at the data from the minimum income experiments in the 1970s, I mean, it's it's somewhat robust. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty strong and it makes a clear... A case that Americans too are pretty
pretty savvy with, you know, and we can do as well, if not better, by putting the money that we that we think about putting in all in all these other systemic solutions in the pockets of the people who are, you know, who are trying hard to make ends meet. You just mentioned EITC, and that's a great segue into talking about what the actual policy proposal that you lay out in your book is. So it's not quite a universal basic income, but can you tell us what is your proposal for actually providing some sort of guaranteed income in the United States? So to um, to start, I think it's important to say that I do aspire to a world where we have a universal basic income, where everybody has financial stability through cash. I am also at heart a pragmatist, <laughs> as idealistic as I often sound. And when I began this work, I really wanted to figure out how to start now, how to start today, and to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because, you know, my view of a true universal basic income would be well more than just $1,000 a month. I mean, $12,000, is that financial stability? I don't know, not, not, not on its own. It's not. I think financial stability through cash has got to be much more robust. So that's the long-term goal. So how can we start now? You know, what can we do that is going to help people and be a down payment on this idea and that we can then build on over the course of years, maybe decades to get to the big, you know, the big picture goal. And I think that's the story of social security. That's the story of a lot of other benefits in America. So specifically to answer your question on the earned income tax credit, I do believe that the lowest hanging fruit in the near future is to modernize what we already have, the earned income tax credit, in such a way that has it feel like a guaranteed income for millions of Americans. So specifically, take this benefit. Right now, the earned income tax credit comes once a year. It's called a tax credit, but it's a check for most people who get it. And people have no idea if they're going to get it and how much it's going to be, if it's going to come each year, it's sort of a guessing game because it's dependent on how old you are, how many kids you have, what state you live in, how much money you earned last year, et cetera, all these variables. So take what we have, which is a cash transfer program, but meaningfully expand it and simplify it so that it works by providing every person who makes less than $50,000, 500 bucks a month, every single month by a direct deposit or debit card into their accounts, no strings attached. So it would be on a per capita basis and not on a household basis. And it would be tied to a big expanded definition of work, which um, hopefully we can get into a little bit more. Right now, it's just tied to work in the formal economy. And my view is effectively everyone in America is already working if we just take a much more expanded view on what work really is. So I think this kind of program could be done today at a cost of a little bit more than what we spent on the Trump tax cut last year. We could pay for it with a tax on the ultra-wealthy and 1%, and it could be a down payment on the long-term idea of a bigger basic income that would touch even more people. So you alluded to this when you're talking about being pragmatic, but what sort of factors were you balancing in designing this proposal? Well, the first was how to use cash to stabilize the lives of the poor and middle class. I mean, that's why I show up every day and do this do this work. So how can we get cash to people in a way that is a meaningful amount that can help and in a way that's regular and predictable? That was one of the things I've been really struck over the past couple of years in talking about what's the problem that a guaranteed income solves. My view is it is income inequality. It's also income instability. You know, with the gig economy and the rise of part-time contract and temporary work, we see so many people 
who have some sorts of income, but it's just highly irregular, very difficult to predict. And so the idea is to provide a kind of heartbeat of stability in the background of $500 a month per, per person. So that was factor one. Factor two was something that Americans would understand just conceptually. I've, I've had a lot of conversations around a basic income, and many of them have left people more confused at the end than at the beginning because of this idea of, well, where's the money coming from? What is it? I get it just no matter what. What happens if the economy crashes? And is there really enough money to pay for it? You know, just it's confusing to a lot of people. And so I wanted to, you know, think about a way to, to make the concept approachable to a lot of the people that I've talked to over the past couple of years, middle class and poor alike, who want to work, but who want to be able to make ends meet. And so that was factor two. And then factor three was cost. You know, I think most of the most aggressive UBI proposals out there are coming to cost of trillions of dollars each year. And that's extremely bold. And I think we need those ideas to spur the debate. But if we're going to talk about what we could do right now, something that is along the lines of $300 billion a year has felt to me and, and a lot of other economists and folks to be, um, to be imminently, well, to be more doable, let's say, than, um, than some of the other ideas. It's still huge, you know, by the factors of anything else, it would be the you know, it's half of what we spend on defense every year. Anybody who says it's not affordable, it's just, I think, got their priorities misplaced. If we can afford tax cuts on the 1% in corporations, then um, by all means, we can afford something of this size. So it, w- it was those factors that went into it. Now, you didn't come from a wealthy family, but you made a very substantial amount of money, about, you say, half a billion dollars in just three years of work at Facebook. In your book, you talk about how that experience has really shaped how you think about money and and our society. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about those perspectives? Well, I mean, as you said, I I grew up in small town North Carolina. We were very much middle class. My mom taught public school. Dad was a salesman. My grandfather was the groundskeeper on a country club. My grandparents on the other side were farmers initially, and then mill workers in the textile factories in North Carolina. And I was the first in my family to get a chance to go away to school. So at Harvard, I knew Mark and I were acquaintances. We weren't that close friends. We decided to room together our sophomore year. We started Facebook and the rocket ship took off. And I'm clear in the book that I did important work for three years. I'm really proud of what I did. But the economic reward was just totally, you know, disproportionate to the time and effort I put in. And at first, you know, for a few years, I just felt like, you know, that was crazy and an extreme. And I was the lucky roommate of Mark Zuckerberg, etc. But I, I have really come to believe that a lot of people are getting very wealthy in historically unprecedented ways. I mean, if you think of like, people in their 20s or 30s coming into hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. I mean, even in the last Gilded Age, it didn't happen that fast. I mean, you have to like find royalty or something, you know, centuries and centuries ago to think about. And that has happened at the same time as the economy, I think, structurally has changed so that everybody else can't make ends meet. I mean, I don't need to go through the numbers with your with your listeners, but the median wages are flat and the cost of living is up by 30%. Those two factors are very much intertwined, very much intertwined. And yet we live in a time where I feel like everyone's just resigned to thinking of the economy as this 
beast that can't be reined in, <laughs> you know, this living creature that is just like, you know, we almost have talk about it with a sense of resignation about, well, man, it's just so crazy what's, what's, what's happening. And we can talk about all these reasons that it's happening, but what can we do? Well, we, we can do a lot. I, and I don't think a guaranteed income is the only thing, but I think it is one of the clearest and most well-documented things that we can do to fight back against that inequality. And at the same time, really double down on an efficient way to alleviate poverty and prepare for a future where automation really may increasingly, and artificial intelligence really may increasingly change how jobs work in the United States. So the reason I work on this is because of two things, just a philosophical belief that cash recognizes the dignity and freedom in every single person like nothing else, and because of my own experience. I mean, I I, I feel like I'm a steward of this money and want to invest it in the highest leverage things to help other people, to help other people, you know, particularly cope with the, uh, with the changes that have, uh, have made my story possible. So speaking of which, you co-founded the Economic Security Project, which is funding the basic income demonstration in Stockton, California. So what is your mission and vision with the Economic Security Project? We want to take the idea of unconditional cash from the fringes to the mainstream. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. We're supporting the Stockton demonstration and Mayor Michael Tubbs doing all kinds of research on not just EITC, but you know, carbon fee and dividend, how to create sovereign wealth funds and distribute dividends, lots of the other ways to do a basic income. We're trying to build a network as big and robust as we can of people from different fields to spur conversations amongst policymakers and technologists and so many other political leaders on how this might work. So But the top line vision is to take an idea that increasingly more people are tuning into and amplify it so that it's bigger and a broader and a more robust movement. We're, in a sense, policy, we don't have an agenda to, I mean, I have, I I believe the ITC is interesting, but I have many colleagues who disagree with me. And the whole point of the economic security project, the way that we've designed it is to be as big a tent as possible and bring in as many heterodox views on how to get this done as possible, to literally invest in them. We you know, invest millions of dollars in, in different people and different ideas in order to have as robust a conversation as we can. So that's why taking it from the realm of, well, that's interesting and slightly crazy, to, well, that's interesting and maybe doable, to, and then to one day to say, you know, we're going to, get this done in the here and now. And I think we're somewhere in the, in the middle of that, that journey at this point. On that note, I think most of us in the basic income space would agree that comparing where we are now to two years ago, we've seen substantial shifts in people's perspectives about, is this actually a legitimate policy direction? And are these ideas worth pursuing? Do you have any predictions or goals as to where we might go in the next two years? Goals, yes. Predictions, I don't know. I, I'm bad at crystal ball gazing. But goals, absolutely. I mean, one goal is for more people on the street just to know the idea. So, you know, we are seeing more people talking about it and familiar with the concept in places like San Francisco and New York, hopefully in cities like Stockton or Jackson, Mississippi or, you know, um, Detroit, we can also make some progress. So just having the concept be in the lexicon is one major goal in the next couple of years. 
I think having a lot of people who think seriously about how public policy works, thinking seriously about this is another goal. So, you know, people, not necessarily legislators, although I'll get to them in a second, but the kind of people who um, think tanks and civil society in Sacramento and Albany and state capitals and in Washington, D.C., really having them, a lot of those people not thinking about this as an off-the-wall idea, but something that is doable. And then thirdly, I do think political leaders, mayors, state legislators, and at the federal level, I want, in terms of goals, I want more of them saying we need we need a, a guaranteed income. And I'm sure they'll all say it, and everybody will have a different approach, probably. I mean, maybe not, but we need that idea out there more often. And so I think a two-year time horizon, let's see, that would take us into 2020, is I'm always I'm always a little optimistic about these things, but I think that's doable. You know, I, I think that's I think that's doable. I, I um, if we organize and if we invest and if we if we make it happen. I don't I'm not of the school that thinks this is a fait accompli. I mean, you know, this is just like inevitable because the robots are rising and the, you know, no, I, I think we have to we have to to work at it to get it done. That was Chris Hughes, co-founder of Facebook, co-chair of the Economic Security Project and author of the new book, Fair Shot. So I thought a lot of that was really interesting. One thing that stuck out to me was how he feels that his ability and the ability of a lot of people to make hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars very quickly, how that's intertwined with the other side of the economy, where for some people it's very hard just to either meet their basic needs or go beyond kind of a very basic middle class lifestyle. Right. He didn't bring up this term in the interview, but he, in his book, he talks about winner-take-all approach to the economy and how we've shifted more and more that a small, increasingly smaller segment of folks do extremely well, but more and more people are just not being able to get ahead. And that you have that such, such a gulf that has emerged and is continuing to grow. I also thought, on a related note, he really made a point of emphasizing the fact that the economy is not static, that we actually have the ability to change the way that things operate. And I think this has come up before in, in our discussions, but that needs to be our starting point. Mm -hmm. We can talk about policy all we want, but if at our core we think the way things operate is set in stone, nothing we do can really solve it, but it's not. I mean, how things operate is actually driven by the rules we set. And so if we enact policy, we can actually change that. Yeah, and that's easy enough to see if you zoom out so you can see a few generations at once, because it's not like we've been living under the same economic rules for more than a few decades. But when you've been living a certain way for long enough, it just feels like this is how things are, and it doesn't seem like there's an obvious way to change anything. But you know that, that's what these movements are about. Yeah, absolutely.